Welcome to a special mini-episode of Broadway Radio's Tell Me More. I'm your host, Matt Tamanini. Here on Tell Me More, we strive to talk about projects and topics that don't often get covered on theater podcasts. On today's episode, I speak to the writer as well as the star of the hit off-Broadway show Midnight at the Nevergit, currently playing at St. Peter's as part of the York Theatre Company's season. The show features a book and score by Mark Sonnenblick and stars his co-conceiver Sam Bolin. The show has previously been seen in a number of small runs in and around New York City, at Don't Tell Mama, at Nymph, and in Provincetown, but it is now having its official off-Broadway premiere, currently running through November 4th. The show is constructed as a cabaret act for Trevor Copeland, played by Sam, and his songwriter, Arthur. The pair has the perfect New York romance, except for the fact that it's 1965, and their relationship is still against the law. Despite that fact, in the back room of the Never Get, an illegal Greenwich Village gay bar, they put together a show called Midnight, a nightclub act where Trevor sings Arthur's love songs with their male pronouns still intact. But as the lovers hurtle towards the end of the 1960s, they find themselves caught in a passion that they can't control and a political revolution they don't understand. Kid, I know you think I'm swell, but why'd you have to call it love? Things were going very well, so why'd you have to call it love? Too many rules will kill the game, and I'm an affair will choke the flame. Oh, why'd you have to put a name on it? Why'd you have to call it Midnight at the Nevergate received fantastic reviews when it opened last week, and the day after it opened, I spoke with both Mark and Sam and asked them what the emotions were like when after multiple productions over three plus years, the show finally opened off-Broadway. You know, if you look at the timeline of it, it's been like concentrated pieces of work, like developmental stuff and, and out of town, but it kind of has felt to me, like a very smooth growth from the time it began. And long ago, we reached a point where I was, you know, sort of exceedingly proud of where we had brought it. And every uh -huh. moment after that has just felt like cream on the top. And last night, you know, to have an audience full of people that were so responsive and then to go to a party afterwards that was just full of people celebrating the show, it just... It, it, it just keeps growing and it just felt like, you know, sort of over the top amazing. I completely agree with everything you said. And I guess uh would just say that, you know, when we've done it in New York before, it's always been for a couple of nights. Uh, You know, I think we've done a total of maybe eight nights in New York before, one of like five nights and then one of three nights. And so this is really the first time we've had it in the city and, and you know, a production that's actually running. Um, you know, seven shows a week uh, for for a month. Um, and that just feels much more tangible and exciting uh, in a way that um, I think we're, we're eager to share it with people in a way that we weren't quite able to do before. Yeah, and, and I know you guys have both been intimately working on this together for years. Was there ever a roadmap to how you wanted the process to go? Like you said, it seemed fairly smooth throughout. Was that by design or has it just been kind of, well, whatever pops up next, we're going to take it? Or has it always been the plan to kind of take these baby steps incrementally each way to get to wherever the ultimate destination is? I think we got pretty lucky. Um, or I, I, I don't think we had a, a clear plan, but... Uh, no, it's you so know, pretty organic, we, you know? Yeah. Um, From the time we, 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 we put it up, we, the advantage of the show, it's only two people. So uh, we were able to, you know, at a lot of musicals, you, you have readings and you have workshops. Uh, and in this case, our sort of 
reading presentation, we were actually able to put it on its feet um, in a takes place in a cabaret club and it's two people. Um, so we could do it at Don't Tell Mama. Uh, more. We didn't have to build a set. We didn't have to make lighting or something. The, the place was the set. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, because of that, we, that's a producer came and, and Chase uh, Goslin, who's been our producer, saw the show there and uh, has kind of ushered it since um, in a way that has felt like not necessarily planned, but in the way that you hope, I think, with any musical, you do a reading, you do a presentation, someone sees it and decides they want to help uh, turn it into something. Um, the process of this was no different than that. It just happened more quickly and in, in kind of a lucky way uh, that we were able to get it to where yeah. it is now in just three years or whatever it was. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's talk about the show. I'm, uh, I haven't seen it. I'm coming uh, in your last week, actually. I'm coming on November 1st, so I'm really looking forward to it. But I've heard so much great stuff about this. A friend of mine saw, I don't know if it was at Don't Tell Mama. And so when it came back, she immediately said, you have to see this show. It's like nothing else um, I've ever seen. And it's so unique and interesting. I don't know what I should and shouldn't spoil, but it is about a songwriter and a cabaret performer um, who are in 1965 in a in an underground uh, gay cabaret nightclub. Is that fair? A fair description for the basic uh, understanding of where the sh- the show starts? Oh uh, yeah, the two of them meet in Greenwich Village and fall in love, and story takes place throughout the 60s with it, like with the the gay rights movement is in the background and yeah, it's a story about, you know, how that, what happens to their romance. So Mark, I know that uh, having gone through and read some of the reviews that came out yesterday, there's a, there's a very much of a social construct in there that applies to today with kind of this, this butting of heads between activism and trying to, integrate into something bigger to make an impact. I, I would imagine that when you started writing the show in, you know, and then started putting it up on its feet in 2015, that it was, it was in a much different context socially uh, than we find ourselves in now in, in 2018, as you've been working on the show and refining the show for each of its productions, how has the world around us uh, kind of changed the, you know, kind of either the intention or the feeling for what this show is, is talking about. Uh, well, I think it, it is the kind of thing where it definitely things feel significantly more uh, like the stakes feel higher. Uh, the, the obviously since the election uh, feels like there's, there certainly has been a radical shift uh, in, in terms of the way that um, our relationship to what being a citizen is, it feels like has changed. But I think a lot of the questions about activism and how you create change have actually, at least for me in my world, just, I was interested in, uh, you know, a lot of my friends and, and things I was struggling with uh, that I've been thinking about for a long time, long before the election uh, happened, uh, you know, a sense of what it meant to look at a world uh, that is unjust or unfair um, and how you create change. Um, I, I think that was part of it, but then also part of it being how can, you know, if you come to a show, we, especially once we figured out uh, this is a time period that we wanted to be telling the story about, how to come into that time period in a way that wasn't going to be exactly what everyone expected. Um, hmm. And we hope that there's a couple surprises in the show, but we, we think that this question um, 
at least I hope that the question about activism uh, versus not is one that particularly when you think about the gay rights movement in the 60s, you think about Stonewall and you think about uh, people, what it took to really make a difference um, and to have characters who maybe were not at the forefront of that change, um, but understand that they had struggles of their own um, yeah, I, I think I was just interested in a way that honestly, I'm, I'm, in, I'm increasingly interested in looking at the world around us, people whose political views are different than you, um, and whose political views seem abhorrent are still people and they are also struggling and being able to understand that they're struggling and see them as people, even if you really disagree with how they express themselves or, um, how they choose to live in the world or who they support politically, I think is a really uh, important thing for us to do as, as citizens in a country and to understand that we're going to disagree with people and we have to figure out a way, you know, to communicate and change people's minds. And is that by protesting? Uh, is that by gaining in people's faces? Is that by, you know, uh, there's a lot of different ways to approach it and starting from a place of compassion a little bit. Uh, I think it's something that is very intriguing and powerful to me. And I don't know the answers to a lot of these questions, but that was something that definitely, it didn't radically affect what was in the show, but definitely uh, came more to the forefront in my mind in terms of how I thought uh, the show might play after the election. Uh, and certainly in terms of the questions I was asking that those parts of the show felt more urgent, but they've, they've been there since the beginning because there were questions I think everyone thinks about and has been thinking about maybe for a while. Yeah, absolutely. So Sam, as you, we talk about the ideas of activism and, and social revolution and, and all of those kind of things. When you think about that, especially in the 1960s, you don't think of the great American songbook. You, you, that's not the music that comes uh, to mind. And obviously that's a, a point uh, in the show, but as you go through these songs, which are, which harken back to that era, obviously Mark, these are your original songs, but same as you perform those songs, how are you able to kind of integrate this feeling of, these this type of music that the audience knows really well but it's talking about something that maybe those songs when they were originally the popular stuff isn't really focusing on uh in not only the time period of the show but in today's society as well yeah i think the songs are really interesting um part of the characters that are in the show and as we've, we've sort of touched on already um you know, these characters are living in the 60s and writing this music and singing this music in the 60s, while that in Great American Songs of Trial isn't what the people outside of their club are listening to hmm. the popular music. And it's not the music that gets associated with the marches and with, the, you know, any sort of the more political upheaval. Um, and I think the music in its style... Uh, is really a part of these two characters and their sort of desire to integrate into something and to, you know, not get in people's faces, do something a little bit more. Um, I think they think of it as more subtle, but it is subversive in that the songs are written for a man to sing to a man. They're doing this gay nightclub act. And they're really in the canon of great American songbook standards. There aren't really gay songs. There were plenty of gay writers, but they were not writing songs, you know, with male pronouns for men to sing. 
Um, and so in that, in that way, these songs do have a little subversion in them. And I think that's what these characters hold on to in that, in the moment when they are, you know, doing this act as the gay rights movement is happening around them. And for me, um, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like crazy subversive to sing these songs today. But there aren't, there still aren't a whole lot of songs like this. There's certainly, you know, it, there's certainly, you can, gen, you can, you know, gender swap pronouns however you want with, with jazz standards or any songs, but to have these songs that are specifically written like this, you know, I don't think it's hitting a lot of people in a way that's like scandalizing them, but it is filling a hole that I think, um, maybe people didn't even realize was there and um that, that and but but it's in a style of these songs that are so accessible that people are so used to listening to that i think we managed to reach them um in a kind of interesting way yeah and i was i wanted to ask mark about that the kind of that accessibility idea that when you're talking about things that are overtly political, like, you know, kind of the, the evolution of the gay rights movement in the 1960s and even how it applies you know, to things today is one of the arguments for maybe not engaging in that frontline political activism is because you had to get people to listen to you in the first place before you can even get them to understand what you're saying. It seems to me like that's kind of what you are doing with the, the great American songbook uh, style. It is kind of inviting people in to, to let the music wash over them before they even actually understand really the underneath message that's coming through them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I kind of that quote you're talking about, about needing people to listen to you first is sort of the, it, what, what you're saying is the songwriter's sort of philosophy, or at least what he presents his philosophy as, uh, and he's the one writing the songs, and that's his whole argument is if we if we switch these pronouns and we put those songs out there, um, then people will listen to it and exactly what you're saying, they'll start to realize our love is the same as everybody else's. Um, so that you kind of hit on sort of the the whole worldview and idea that the songwriter presents um, in the show. And I think, at least for me, part of the uh, I guess the subversion of the accessibility thing I'm thinking about or uh, I thought a lot about as a writer was less the politics of it. Um, although, you know, I'm I, I'm sure that there are I'm sure it sounds like I don't know. I know that there are areas in <laughs> uh, even in America where these this show or these kind of songs, the people would not be excited to hear them sung. Um, but. I'm more thinking about, I think, using the, the sound of the music and the style of the music to make the show feel familiar in a way that, like a, the, the musical feel familiar in a way that hopefully we subvert uh, over the course of the show and make people think, you know, I, I think our, part of our goal is, you know, you, we want us to kind of stay one step ahead of you in terms of the, the show that you're watching um, and using this, uh, this style um, and the cabaret format, I think, is a way to get people in and immediately have them understand what you're presenting, um, which then kind of they're like, okay, I see this, I understand, I know what I'm watching, uh, which then hopefully allows you to 
do some unexpected things, yeah. um, both in terms of the love story uh, and um, in terms of the show itself. Yeah, and those are kind of some of the things that I said earlier. I didn't want to didn't want to spoil. I don't know how much you uh, you want to talk about um, those things, but it, I, I love kind of the construct of uh, of the show and kind of the interesting way that you've chosen to structure. It, but I won't get into that if that is a, a surprise that uh, you'd rather save for the people in the theater. That that's very nice of you. I think I think it is that like you know we want people to come in knowing that if, if you love this kind of music, you're going to get a whole score that sounds like the American songbook and hopefully you enjoy that. But, um, you know, that, that's just kind of, um, where, where the story starts and, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. So uh, kind of looking forward, you guys are, are at the York through November 4th. And this has got, this is one of those shows that I, a lot of people that I talk to are, are excited about and, and are really interested to kind of see the continued trajectory uh, of this show for you guys though, um, living in the moment of, of this production, when people are, maybe they only know what you just said about the great American songbook and kind of getting into the ideas uh, of the, you know, of the 1960s activism era. What do you think of the experience is for people who come and see this show, what they can expect to walk away from? What is that kind of nice little emotional feeling that they can leave the theater saying, okay, this is what I experienced in the theater having seen this show. I think um, a thing that we've, the the show has really grown to become is a, is a very deep romance. The story that I tell every night about um, this this couple is so romantic, especially because it's just sort of soaked in these songs that are so beautiful. And um, it's really about how you remember your the loves that you've had throughout your life. And I think hmm. a lot of people leave sort of feeling and thinking about that kind of romance in their own life. I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Mark, what about you? Uh, I, I, I certainly hope that um, um, they, they, you know, people come in and feel uh, that way about the romance. Um, but something else that I think is, ex- is exciting to us, is the, the creators of the show is, is there's a lot of, um, uh, there's there's kind of a lot of ambiguity in the show, which uh, makes it a little bit of a tricky show, I think, but also means that hopefully people walk away feeling very different things um, and their relationship to the story they watched and what exactly they watched um, and how it related to their life or how uh, they thought it played out over the course of the evening. Um, we've seen it be pretty different. Uh, you get dinner afterwards and people like, argue with each other about how they feel. Um, and that to me is very exciting because uh, a lot of the story is, is about romance, but it's also about um, memory and the ways that we, you know, in order to live, we don't just create an identity to the world around us, but we create an identity to ourselves about who we are and what we've been uh, and what our life was like. And I think that's something else that when people come and see it, they that resonates with them in different ways, um, and sometimes in positive ways, sometimes in negative ways. Sometimes people hate the show because they they're like, well, you know what, what was that? Um, but I think it's exciting to us that there's a lot of different people can walk away and put a lot of themselves into the show uh, in a variety of different places, um, and 
at, at least to me, that that's been something that's been very cool to see over the course of the past couple of years. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I, I mentioned this earlier that uh, Sam, you are leading the production, you're starting the production, but you are credited as a co-conceiver. So I wonder if you guys could, whichever one of you, Sam, if you want to start where kind of the conception of this started, where did the idea for Midnight at the Never Get kind of get going? And how did you guys kind of form what the show became over these past three, four years um, into what we see on on stage at the York? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so I came to uh, like a three, like four years ago now, I guess. I came to Mark with an idea that was sort of inspired by some tribute concerts, like that Sondheim birthday concert that's so fabulous. And I think at the time, Marvin Hamlish had just died and they were doing this very fancy tribute concert to him at Lincoln Center. And uh, I was thinking about what if you had a tribute concert to a fictional songwriter and, you know, what if it was the songwriter had gotten very famous, but the songwriter's lover had not gotten famous and was doing this tribute concert to the songwriter, singing the songs and telling you the stories. And you were, you know, having this experience of hearing the songs for the first time because you were literally hearing them for the first time because they're original, but also getting the sense that you were hearing the story behind them. So really understanding them. And anyway, I brought that to Mark and I think he was really excited to originally really excited to write in this style, this sort of great American songbook style. And from there, we um, we sort of fleshed out these ideas about the romance and, you know, where what time period to set it in um, and, you know, started finding themes and things that we were very interested in. And pre- pretty quickly thereafter, brought on our director, Max Friedman, who now it's been the three of us, um, ever since sort of building the show together. Mark has written every word, put every word on the page and written every note, but it's always very collaborative. He'll bring in new pages and we talk a lot about it. We, you know, Mark has done a lot of research, but we've all done a lot of reading about this time, listening to a lot of this music, um, sort of growing it from a seed together. And it's been really a very rewarding collaborative process. By now, it really feels like we all really live in this world together. Yeah, and Mark, when he brought it to you, what what was it that that really stuck out to you? Uh, well, initially, it was it was the the chance to write a score that sounded uh, like the Great American Songbook, and it's it's tricky a little bit to write a show that sounds that way uh, without the show itself sort of being a throwback um, and the whole thing being a pastiche, uh, you know, like that we there's already fantastic musicals written by Cole Porter. Uh, why, why write another one that's just trying to imitate that was kind of the question, but the answer, I mean, the answer was like, I want to write that music. So how can <laughs> the, the fact that Sam had this idea that, Oh, we're going to use the songs as though it's a fictional songwriter. That seemed fun. But then also that we can put it in a cabaret form. That was something kind of different that, uh, I hadn't really seen before, especially if then that cabaret was able to become something else. And uh, the more we talked about it and the more that the idea grew, the more exciting it became. And clear became to me that, uh, you know, writing in that style is kind of inherently a form of nostalgia and recreation and emulation. And uh, what's so 
what I think one cool thing about this show right now is that it, those things, nostalgia and recreation are at the heart of the story. And we felt like the whole theme of the show is centered around that. And so kind of the, the form of these songs and the form of the cabaret also is deeply linked to kind of uh, the function that those, and that the, the songs don't really tell the story directly, but hopefully they do tell the story indirectly in a way that's surprising uh, in part because thematically the way that they sound and the way that they work is really tied into sort of what Sam as, as Trevor, the main character is, is struggling with. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I, I'm super excited uh, to see this show. I've heard nothing but uh, absolutely uh, great things about people who have seen it in its different incarnations. But you, I have to ask, Mark, you said you, you, you know, what you like about where the show is now is, and then what you said, um, this has been a process like we talked about for the last three or four years. Do you know what is next for Midnight at the Nevergate after it's done at the York? Do you have plans for where or when something else happens? Or is it just still, like you said earlier, whatever happens, happens and kind of the lucky organic turns of uh, of fate? Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly how, how we feel. It's sort of whatever happens, happens. Uh, and I mean, one nice thing about the show is that it's a small show. And so the hope is that... Uh, you know, maybe it can be seen again in New York, but potentially other cities as well. Uh, it, it's portable. You know, it's, we, we did it in Provincetown last summer, uh, and that went very well. And it, I don't know. I mean, well, you obviously hope it's something that can continue uh, in some way. But right now, especially, uh, we were just leading up to last night uh, with opening, and I think we're feeling amazing about that and uh, excited to just kind of go on the ride of, of what's next as we've done every step of the way. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. My name is Matt Simonetti. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWWMatt, and you can reach out to Broadway Radio on both Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. We will have information for the York Theatre Company's production of Midnight at the Never Get in the show notes and on BroadwayRadio.com. Tell Me More is produced and edited by me. Special thanks to Philip Caruba, Richard Hillman, and the man without whom none of Broadway Radio is possible, James Marino. Thanks again for listening, and remember, I think the future's bright, though there is some frustration. Also, always get a second scoop, and when you get the chance, ask people to tell you more. <laughs>